Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. We're taking a break from our break to bring you a very special episode featuring the wonderful Nisha Ganatra, director of the movie Late Night. Late Night stars Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling, who also wrote the script. We loved the film, and we hope you all get a chance to see it. It's out in theaters in L.A. and New York today, June 7th, and nationwide June 14th. Also, look out for season two of our podcast later this summer. We've been talking with some incredible women. Stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining us, Nisha. We're really excited to talk with you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Great. So how did you get involved with Late Night? And can you talk about the process of developing the film with Mindy Kaling? Yes. Um, Well, I had read the script that Mindy wrote and just immediately loved it because I think it's rare to read a script that you didn't write that is so much your own experience. And um, I met with her and Howard, her manager, who was also producing the film. And what was supposed to be sort of a a short first-time meeting turned into a pretty long meeting because I had thought, oh, I'll just put a little, um, I'll just start collecting my thoughts and images in this little document. And then before I knew it, it was sort of a three-hour meeting where I was talking them through every scene and how I saw it and why it was important and what I felt about it. And um, then I got the news that they were going to hire me to direct the movie, and it was really exciting. And then from there, Mindy and I just started... um, developing the script so I just gave some notes and she would she was pretty great about executing them quickly you know and so it was more just um about grounding the character and finding um the journeys because there was so much going on in the movie like every character has a plot and there was even more before so it was kind of stripping away the stuff that you knew wasn't going to really make it so that you could focus on the character who was going in her journey so it was really Emma's journey or Emma's character arc and then also Mindy's character arc and making sure they were both served um, and ideally intertwining with each other and servicing each other's arcs so that was most of the development we did I'm talking like I'm talking to a group of filmmakers who are listening. Yeah, I'm no, assuming. That's who's okay, good. Because I was like, do I have to explain no, exactly. what arc is? No. no, no. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, and delving in deeper to that, what was it like directing a film that's both written by and then starring that same person? And how did you, as a director, create your own vision while still staying true to what Mindy had created and written? I mean, it's really it's a tricky thing when the star is also the writer. Um, But, you know, Emma Thompson obviously wrote Sense and Sensibility and was one of the stars of it. And it was purely Ang Lee's vision. I think Emma's, um, you know, such a pro at that, just realizing here's what a director brings to the table. And I think with Mindy, it was interesting because I was worried about her television background and wondering if she was, you know, going to be okay with the fact that film is a director's medium and um, I think there were some growing pains for sure there was a little bit of like oh but um, you know this is I've made those decisions and she kind of would arrive and be like well nobody asked me for approval and it was like yeah you don't um, 
huh. <laughs> it was like a little bit like that in the beginning. And it was interesting, though, because on her TV show, she was very, you know, um, like vocal about being respectful of directors and understanding the director's role and not wanting to kind of get in that and was very able to kind of let go and let every director have their um, way on her show. And I think this one, I had to sort of realize that it was her first movie and she was feeling very um, vulnerable and like there was a lot at stake. And that actually was something, once I realized that was what was happening, it helped me have a lot more empathy, but also realize I can use that for the character because the character had a lot at stake. And um, Mindy Kaling is somebody who's far from starting her career. So it was um, something that I, as a director, helped tap into and use for her performance, which was probably... um, not the most comfortable thing in in every scene. Like I'm sure that feeling of anxiety and out of controlness that I was finding giving a really good nuanced performance was an uncomfortable feeling for Mindy to actually sit through and experience every day. So I don't, you know, it certainly wasn't like the smoothest production in terms of that at times, but in the end, I think her performance is so, um, good and I'm really proud of it and I really wanted to make sure it wasn't like a version of Mindy Lahiri from her show that you really saw this character Molly as fully a different um, side of her so that in the end was like you know everybody's very happy with the movie (laughs) but I would say there were definitely some bumps in the filming but how you were saying how do you make it your own vision you just you have to like you have no choice as a director but it has to be your vision like I don't um I don't even know where to put the camera or how to film the scene if I don't understand emotionally what the what the scene is about and what it's for. So you just um, have to kind of forget that the actor is the writer and just get into it and direct it like you would any other thing. But what I did do, because it is Mindy and because she has the sort of... Um, gift of comedy and making things better, after when it was her take, I would... Um, sort of find a little middle line of asking her, okay, were you happy with that? Would you like to go again? Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, Like I'd kind of make the time to do that for her takes and not really, we didn't really, we shot the whole movie in 25 days. So there wasn't time to do that for everything. I think on a big studio film, if you have the actor and writer, you could say between every take and have conversations and have more of a discussion. But on this one, we had to run so fast or we just wouldn't have made our days that I kind of only made the time to do that with her takes and, um, alts and things. And if I did, I'd make sure I did a scripted pass and then I'd do an improv pass where if it were my own script, I'd probably be more comfortable dumping my own material faster. Like I'd just say, oh, let's go with this one. It's better. But because it was Mindy and because she was there, I was very respectful to say, okay, I'll make sure I get everything the way you've written it at least once. And then, um, then I get to play. (laughs) Quick question on the, um, like when you have your own vision and then like delving into the story, were there any points where there was kind of a discrepancy like between interpreting those different moments and like the emotional arc or were you pretty much on the same page the whole way through? And if there were those moments, how did you kind of navigate them? Um, That's an interesting question. I think there were, I wouldn't say discrepancy. I think I was very interested in deepening Emma's arc. And I remember the first draft of the script just feeling like um, her character, the progression of her arc wasn't as clear. So I kind of just said, here's what I think happens. Like, I think her show's in jeopardy, which was as written. And then I said, I think at first she should say, yes, the show's in jeopardy and it's your fault. And then the second beat is, okay, 
Um, it's not your fault, but how do we make it better? And then the third beat is, I'm sorry, it's my fault. And let me take responsibility for making it better. And then once we kind of agreed on that, then Mindy executed, I would sort of speak in bigger beats of here's what I need the movie to do emotionally. And then you get to have your fun as the writer. Like nobody wants to be micromanaged. Like I don't want a writer telling me where the camera should go or what, how I should cover things. And equally respectful I don't want to tell the writer like this is how you should execute my note so I kind of would say here are the emotional beats I need that are missing and then I'd let her execute it the way she wanted to and um, if it didn't fit like the location or the place I'd say the only sort of discrepancies were sometimes that like um, you know like Mindy walked in and was like this is not what a writer's room looks like a writer's room has no windows and has all walls and you know I always want to sequester the writers so that they are just focused on the material at hand and nobody lets you sort of have a life outside the windows and I was like listening to that going that is very fascinating and super visually boring <laughs> and I don't want to direct a movie that 90% takes place inside of four walls you know that's going to be a whole different movie that I just don't want to watch you know <laughs> and so um so that was I think tough was sort of saying well this is the office I've chosen this is where I'm building the writer's room three walls are made out of windows. Um, but you know, to me that was just the difference between a director and a writer. Like a writer can get very literal and it, that's why you need a director to interpret your script because they will bring it. Ideally they bring something to the movie that you never would have imagined as a writer. And, um, I think it's hard for writers, but if they can keep in mind, like you're not trying to ruin their vision, you are trying to make a very good movie out of their script, then everyone can stay calm and realize like, oh yeah, everyone's doing their best to make this the best it can be. No one's trying to like make things shitty on purpose. <laughs> and that's like, so it sounds so basic, but I think a lot of people like the anxiety takes over and you forget that like everyone's trying to do their best, you know? And that's like just a good mantra, I think, to keep reminding yourself. Can you talk a little bit about how your directing experience in television might have informed directing a film about a show of television? Yeah, I thought that was such a cool question because I, you know, I started an independent film and then I recently have been directing television and um, it's such a different muscle than, than filmmaking. And it's also so challenging to not get complacent in television. Like you could, um, you know, let all of the, all of the people saying, don't rock the boat, just do what we've always done. We always shoot in this room and this angle. Like, why do you want to change the angle? You can kind of let that just be the easy ride through TV and be like, all right, I guess I'll just put the camera here where everyone else does. Or you can keep sort of pushing for something different. Um, but this one, it was interesting because I think all of that experience directing TV shows helped me, um, it really helped me know the writer's room a lot because I, you know, on Transparent, I was the consulting producer. So I was in the writer's room every day. So I saw these personalities and how they work together and what happens in a writer's room and how the sort of creator of the show, which would have been Emma's role, um, influences each writer and how people act when she's around and when they, how they act when they're not around. It really helped me inform all the performances, having this experience in TV. And then also just visually, our DP, um, 
uh, also shot the show 30 Rock. So he had a really good sense of here's what we did with the show within the show on 30 Rock. And then we had a lot of conversations about how do we do that in the most cinematic way so it doesn't turn into like an episode of 30 Rock, you know, and how do we make this sort of the movie version of that. And, um, and then also I think with television, just the pace, like, I mean, indie film is very similar, like 25 days to shoot a movie and TV, um, is just as fast. So I think it just kept my sort of skills sharp of, um, you have three shots to tell this scene, not five or six or seven. Like I, I hopefully will have now on this bigger movie. Um, so when you only have two or three shots, cause you can't afford the time for more, you really have to figure out visually, how do I tell the story in as few shots as possible? And none of us ever want to do coverage when we're directing, but, um, we really couldn't on this one. Like I, and I said that early to the producers, I was like, I'll do 25 days, but you have to understand that everybody doesn't get a close up, and nobody should have any scenes where everybody gets a close up. Like television has kind of ruined that where you have lost the language of shots. I think in, in some shows where it's like, well, everybody needs a close up just in case I want to cut to that joke or I want to adjust the timing or I need to edit out a line. And so there's kind of this thing in TV where you're always shooting for the editing room where in film you can like take a stance a little more and say, this is the scene, this is the moment, this is how I'm covering it. Um, and if anyone tries to change that later in the editing room, they'll just be met with frustration because your shots won't work that way, which is kind of great. <laughs> the film was acquired by Amazon studios for a record $13 million at this year's Sundance film festival. Can you talk about what that experience was like? Yes, it was crazy and amazing. Um, we had the premiere and I literally, I finished mixing the movie January 17th and then we flew to Sundance and premiered it like four days later. And, um, Jennifer Salke came to, I remember seeing her at the after party and I was in such a daze because I was doing these 14 hour mixed days. I had this new baby. Then I like got on a plane to Sundance holding this baby being like, wow, I didn't really think this part of it through. <laughs> and then I was like breastfeeding, but trying to do press, but trying to like go. And it was also my first time at the festival with, um, you know, financiers. So I've usually just gone with like my own movie being stressed out trying to sell it. And this time it was like, here's a publicist, here's a hotel, here's, and I was like, oh, this is a real movie. This is a totally different experience. <laughs> and we're on Main Street doing all this cool stuff that I always see all the other people doing while you're like, somebody please come watch my movie. And so that was pretty awesome. But they had this after party and Jennifer Salke was there from Amazon and she said, I saw the movie. I really loved it. And I remember thinking, oh God, I hope they get you know, like, I hope they just yeah. buy it and um, people get to see it because that's all you want when you make your movie is for as many people as possible to see it. And um, then there was that all night bidding more thing. But I was back like I had to go back and feed the baby. And then I came back, I was getting all these text messages. And then there was this like bidding more going on to like four in the morning. And then you know, Mindy had just gone to bed at like 1030 or something. And so I was like, cause she's such a good student. And she was like, I know I have to be up early tomorrow. And, um, I think the next morning we kind of went to the next, the morning screening in this days of our movie just sold for like the record sale, the movie that everybody was sort of like, Oh, this is risky. Cause it's two women in the leads. Oh, one of the women is over 50. Oh, I don't know. It's women in comedy. You know, it was all the things that everybody said was too risky broke the record at Sundance for the biggest sale ever. That was like unbelievable, but it took 
days to sink in. I think I wasn't really figuring it out until sometime like Monday. I remember I was like walking and I just stopped and like burst into tears. (laughs) And I was like, oh, it's this movie. It's like, there's always a few movies that are the story of Sundance. And I was like, it's my movie. I, it's me this time. Like I've for years, like read the indie wire and looked at filmmaker magazine and gone to Sundance. And it's always like that person's movie, but it's so interesting. Cause I remember thinking, I can't even, um, feel that this is real because every year it's always some guy with a beanie being like, I fucking want Sundance, you know, and it's never an Indian woman like holding a baby. Like that's not whose film breaks the record at Sundance, you know? And so it took me a while to be like, Oh, Oh, it's me. It's me. It's me. Like, it's really, me. it's really happening. I didn't really get it. And then when it happened, when it finally all hit me, I just was like, Oh my God. Like it was so overwhelming. But, um, yeah, it's pretty exciting because now it's crazy. Like you walk through the city and there are posters and a bus go, went by with like all wrapped in late night. And I was like, what's happening? You know, and everybody's heard of it. And my only my mom is like, what's going on? <laughs> and I was like, well, I made this movie. And she was like, what is late night? And I was like, it's a movie I directed. It's this thing I've been trying to do my whole life. And she is like, just kind of, it's so sad. She just kind of, um, I guess, lost faith. It, like, and it's just like, I was like, it's actually happening now. And she was like, oh, that took too long. And I was like, I know. I know. I wish it happened sooner. <laughs> Oh gosh, too real. It's weird to feel like so grateful for the success of it and also simultaneously sad that it didn't come sooner. Mm-hmm. You know, that it took so long to have a movie like break out and do something and for people to accept that like these movies can do well. It's just like that thing where you're like, well, I'm so happy it's finally happening. And then you're like, why did it have to take so long? Why didn't it happen 10 years ago or 15 years ago? It just is like, yeah, that that is such a weird thing to feel. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad it's here now. (laughs) (laughs) I know. My friend said, you know what? Sometimes it doesn't ever happen at all. And I was like, well, that's terrifying. So I will just be very thankful. One of the reasons we love this film so much is truly because we found ourselves hysterically laughing out loud at so many moments during the film. And we're just curious, how did you approach directing those comedic elements while still keeping the world and the characters in the film so grounded? That's such a good question. I mean, I think I had the most amazing cast in the world. And the thing that I didn't um, know or experience as a director until I did this movie was that... Um, that whole thing they talk about number one on the call sheet and you're always like, Oh, what are these numbers and who cares? And what is that all about? But when Emma Thompson comes to set and sets this tone for, um, like joy and preparedness and reaching for excellence all the time and staying wholly grounded in your character. When she does that, everybody kind of rises up and tries to meet that. Like you don't want to be the person in the scene with Emma Thompson, that was not good. So everybody tried to bring their best and, um, everyone's comedy. 
I think I did a lot of rehearsals where I just had them all really root their characters in who they were. Mindy had um, backstories for each character that she had written when she wrote the script. So I asked her for those and I read through them and made adjustments if we needed to for the movie and then gave them to each of the actors and said, this is who you are. This is where you come from. So and she had really um, specifically written what kind of comedy each person did and why. And Charlie was a stand-up. You know, Tom was good at monologues. This guy was great at one-liners. This person was good at character stuff. He said, had sort of old-school jokes that never made it into the show. Like, you know, all of everybody was so clearly defined in what exactly they were bringing that then when we did our improv pass, it was really clear, like, who um, who would kind of... Uh, say what, you know, so we also did a really uh, cool thing where right before we started shooting, we took the script and brought in all late night comedy writers and they punched up the script. So they, everybody went through every single joke in the script and pitched alternative jokes. And I just wrote all the notes down so that when we were on set and we were doing them, I would just call out the alt alt lines to people. And then in the editing room, we had a few to choose from. Like, do we want to go with the scripted one? Do we want to go with what this person made up? Um, Sometimes things just felt a little too on the nose, so we would try to undercut it. You know, like one of my favorite improv moments in the whole movie is that scene where Emma's finally calling all the writers by their names. And she said to me, you know, I'm crying in this scene, and then I'm going to go to the theater, and I'm going to cry in that scene with um, my husband and I don't want to be crying in two scenes back to back and I said you're right and she said so we can make the crying in this scene comedic and the crying in that scene has to be very heartfelt and real and then we were sort of shooting and it just kept falling a little flat like we couldn't really and the DP said what if she didn't call everybody by their name and then I was like oh what if the last last person you just think is going to be his name and you say six and she was like oh I like that and then as Emma could do it only she just left the perfect pause and then just you know says six and you just die laughing because she's just unapologetic still like she just and it turned out I think the laugh is because her character doesn't change that much you know she changes a little but not that much and that's like when comedy rings true is when you don't forget who the character is and what their arc is and where they are so if she were to just do everybody's names it would have felt so out of character and weird and I think that was the lesson I learned from directing Transparent with Jill Soloway was to just keep yourself open to listening to your emotional instinct the whole time you're directing because you know what to do if you're just following your instinct, you know, if you've done all the preparation and training, then you can let go all of that and get to the point where you're just following instinct. Um, so that was a lot of fun. It was just like best idea, you know, it doesn't matter who it's coming from. It's like you have all these artists together. Everyone's trying to make the best movie. The best ideas come from where you wouldn't even expect it. I mean, in this one, I expected it because our DP is very funny and talented. So <laughs> I really expected him to do that. Shout and out to the DP. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All those years on 30 Rock, better, you better have a better good sense of humor. Jokes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, this next question is a little meaty, but we were talking a lot about this after we saw the film, so we wanted to try to go for it. We were struck by the film in terms of what it is clearly examining. We see Mindy Kaling's character, Molly, grapple with being ambitious while also trying to be a good person. And additionally, we see Emma Thompson's character, Catherine, deal with the repercussions of pursuing career excellence and what cost that comes to her personal life. 
by the end of the film, we know where the characters stand on issues that they're grappling with. How did you maintain that clarity and vision throughout the process? That is, that was the most important thing was the, the characters' journeys and where they're coming from and what it is. And then also hiding this sort of bigger theme of feminism and, um, you know, what generation of feminism is coming for, at it from what point of view. So for Emma's character, it wasn't just what caught, what um, pursuing her career in excellent cost her personally. It was also the whole idea that she felt like she had to give up these things to get in that room that was controlled by men and what that did to her as a person and how it made her behave towards other women um, behind her consciously or unconsciously. And then Molly's character is sort of coming in with this more millennial-like vibe of, hey, I'm just going to tell you all my feelings and spill my guts everywhere, and it's your problem, and, you know, not having any sense of boundaries or, um, you know, entitlement. <laughs> and she kind of comes at it from, okay, what I have to learn from this person is um, that there is something greater than just my feelings and that doesn't, my feelings don't justify, um, behavior, you know? And so it kind of was this point where I think the the hidden message I really wanted to make sure people got was that, you know, Emma's character had this moment of, wow, I gave up all these things and it was all nonsense. I never had to give that up. It was just bullshit all along that there's only room at the table for one woman and that, um, Molly's character comes in and is like, I shouldn't have judged her so harshly because I should have been more aware of what she had gone through and why, what made her the way she is. And so the two of them together, I think, um, Emma sort of shows that like you can open the door behind you and try to rush in as many young women as possible because inclusion just sort of makes everything better for everyone. And there, this idea that if you get a seat at the table, there isn't a seat for me was just fiction and never existed that way in the first place. It was all just some bullshit story we all bought into. And I really wanted to make sure the movie sort of dissembled that and took it down and made it say like, okay, women, we have to be each other's champions because we can't keep this up being each other's enemies. It's just everybody loses. So reading about you and your work, we found that your first feature was called Chutney Popcorn, (laughs) and the main character is an Indian-American woman living in New York City. Yes. Uh, It almost seems like the seeds for Late Night were planted with this film from 1999. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey in directing that film? Yeah, that was my first film. Um, I was a student at NYU film school, and I had a really the great advice that which was you know make your first feature while you're still in film school because if it comes out really bad you can just be like that was my student film and if it comes out good you can be like that's my first feature and it just launches your career and so um the great thing about NYU is the school had one rule which was don't add to the shit that's already out there like say something that hasn't been said before or maybe just don't make a film, you know, <laughs> like don't, <laughs> yeah, like there's a lot of movies out there and a lot of them don't really say anything we haven't said. So really make sure you're saying something unique. And I think if I hadn't gone to that school, I wouldn't have made that movie, but I was sort of struggling with, um, 
you know, I really wanted to make movies with the immigrant experience and the Indian American experience, but I didn't want that to be the main crux of it. I didn't want it to be like, oh, I'm Indian American and my life is so hard, you know, and I really wanted it to be a comedy. And my co-writer, who turned out to be a co-writer, my classmate, Susan Carnival, was writing a movie about two women having a baby. And she was struggling with all the gay and lesbian films that had come before that were all coming out stories. And I was like, can't we just say they're gay and they don't need to come out and nobody has a problem with them being gay. The problem is like, how do we have a baby? And then the other ones, like, how do we just say like, no one has a problem with being Indian American. The problem is like, how do I get my mom on board with me having a baby with my girlfriend? And so we just sort of took, we stood on the shoulders of all those films before us and said, we don't have to explain this anymore. We're just going to start from this point forward and made a movie about a gay Indian American woman trying to have a baby with her girlfriend. Um, but who didn't even know she wanted to have a baby. She actually first, um, her sister finds that she can't get pregnant or carry a child. And so she agrees to be the surrogate for her sister. And then over the course of the movie, the sister finds that she doesn't actually want to have the baby this way. And the gay sister finds that she actually really did want to have a baby all along. And the mom has to sort of do all the somersaults of, um, figuring out like which daughter the daughter she sort of wrote off as the bad one is now going to give her what she wants more than anything in the world which is a grandchild (laughs) and the one who was like the great daughter who you know was the golden child is now the biggest disappointment to her because she can't like bring her this thing and so it was sort of um all of the dynamics between these women and how they treat each other and what what happens in this family how does this family stay together with this sort of big um, dilemma. So that was, and I think that was like the most fun was taking something that seems like a very serious topic and, um, making sure the comedy was in it. And it was sort of the biggest way I learned that you can talk about very serious things as long as people are laughing. And if they stop laughing, then it all of a sudden feels very preachy. And so you have to make sure it's really funny and you keep people laughing if you want to try to get some sort of message across. So in that sense, I think it laid the seeds perfectly for something like Late Night, where ultimately I got to talk about all of these issues that I really care deeply about, but again, hidden in the world of comedy. Um, So Late Night comes out June 7th. Yes. Yay. Um, So you're still kind of in the midst of this whole experience. Yes. But have you had any chance to kind of reflect upon making the film and this particular directing experience and, and can kind of look at what you'll take from this moving forward with other projects? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I will always take that incredible feeling of Sundance and knowing that your movie is going to connect with so many people. That is like such a gift and such a uh, thing you can't control like as as a filmmaker you just um I don't know that's up to like the filmmaking gods like who gets plucked from the festival into theaters it is just such a weird random you know some years it's everyone some years it's no one and it's so heartbreaking because all you want is for everyone to see it so I'm really thrilled with all these new venues that people can see things in but um god I haven't had a chance to reflect on it I mean I did I did for a minute say to Mindy, like, hey, you know, you had a three-month-old when we were shooting, and I was six months pregnant or seven months pregnant. So, you know, maybe emotions ran high once in a while. (laughs) 
maybe we can all like, you know, understand that we were in a pressure cooker of making a movie in 25 days with this like insane, you know, creating life, creating life while creating life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it was, it was a really fun time. I mean, the cast was so generous and so lovely. And, um, that's the thing you get with indie films that you don't get in, bigger budget movies is everyone's like dedication and hearts because everyone's there for the right reason you know they're just there because they really want to be because they're certainly not there because you're paying them a ton to be there um but the biggest thing I think I'll take away from this was getting to work with Emma Thompson and John Lithgow and just you know such stellar actors like some of the best actors of our time and just realizing like um what professional artists they are how hard they work how generous they are how kind they are is and what joy they find every day in performing is really something that just keeps inspiring you to keep um, pursuing your art and doing better and better at it (laughs) I like that like not forgetting the joy of it because I think sometimes you can get caught up and like oh it's so stressful it's so busy or whatever it is and it's like oh yeah at the end of it that creativity that like then brings people together and you collaborate it's very exciting. yeah it's really unique and we're so lucky we get to do what we do but it really truly is the most collaborative art I mean I can't really think of another one that is as collaborative as what we're doing yeah, yeah. cool well we end every uh interview with our rapid response segment three oh my two God. one action <laughs> oh Woo. no okay I'll try <laughs> um cool so we'll start with three your okay. favorite or most influential memorable film Oh, my God. Uh, the one that's popping into your brain right now. Uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Pedro Almodovar. I remember seeing that and then thinking, I want to make movies. <laughs> Two, dream person you would like to work with. Emma Thompson. <laughs> Mission accomplished. I know. Emma Thompson again. Wait. <laughs> Manifesting the second, I know. second time. Yeah. Um, or Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse Ronan. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> One, best advice you've ever received? Oh, um, the best advice was to make my movie. Like, make your movie. Don't wait. Don't wait for anyone to give you permission. Just um, have as many smart people as possible read your script and give you notes. Do their notes. (laughs) Don't ignore their notes. And then make your movie. And action, what are you most looking forward to right now? Oh, right now in this moment, mm-hmm. um, I get to watch a bunch of auditions tonight for the new movie I'm prepping, and I just love actors and working with actors so much, so it's really fun to watch all the auditions. I I don't like that they're happening on links and computers and that you don't get to be in the casting room like you used to be, but now I just sound like a really old person complaining about the good old days, but um yeah, I don't know. I, I'm really looking forward to this movie I get to make. I'm really looking forward to seeing Emma and Mindy again while we open the movie next week. And um, I'm looking forward to my mom finally understanding what I've been doing all these years. <laughs> Is she coming to the premiere? I've invited her. I don't know if she will come. Let's hope she does. <laughs> and lastly, where can people follow you on social media? Ah, website. I have to get better at social media. I and it's just one of those things. Now they put it in your directing contract. You have to like tweet and do all this random stuff. It's so weird. But um, yeah, so at Nisha Ganatra 
very hard. Um, I think Instagram is the same, Nisha Ganatra, which I also better get better at. And this is making people really want to go on these sites. Like, like we gotta is, check this out. Yeah, exactly. Let's see your tweet from like 18 years ago. Um, and no one does Facebook anymore because of that whole Russia business. And. <laughs> What else? Well, I like a website. Fall the movie too. Yeah, oh, the movie yeah. at late night. Yes, awesome. or at late night movie. I believe. I think so. Yeah. And you have a website. Sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, and the website would be great. Okay. <laughs> Love it. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We thank really enjoyed you. talking with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos are by Megan Cafferty. This podcast is produced by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.